<laughs> All right, well, good evening. Is it, uh, isn't worship music, there's something about worship music that, I don't know if you're like me, but some days you just need it and you don't realize you need it. Are you with me on that? Uh, because there's some things, you know, even, even if you walk in through the door and you say, oh, I'm not in the mood to sing. Maybe I'm not a singer. Maybe I'm not a person that likes to stand up and sing. I'll soak it in, but I won't participate. And yet sometimes what happens is when we hear, uh, you know, everybody participate and we kind of, you know, listen to the truths that are found in the song, uh, almost always, you know, directly from Scripture or certainly principles, you know, from the Scripture. Uh, there's something about it that we exhale our worries, you know, our concerns. Uh, the anxiety that we have, the worry that we have, the, the concerns uh, that we're dealing with, everything that we're carrying around, sometimes it feels as if, even if we don't sing out loud, we hear the songs, we listen, we absorb it, and we say, man, I, I needed that, and I didn't even know it. Uh, you've arrived uh, for our midweek service, and we're talking about one of our values today called Authenticity. Uh, I don't know if you know this or not or have been keeping track, but we've dedicated uh, in the, our new building since our opening to do about, you know, one midweek per month with the exception of we canceled April for Easter. But back when we had our first one on Thanksgiving Eve, we covered our first value, which is in Christ, which is identity. And we talked about that. Remember the Harry Potter thing? Remember that thing? Okay. And then we, uh, in January, we kind of turned it over to Dave Wilson and Dave Wilson did kind of his own thing and, and he did like a New Year's resolution thing. And then in February, Craig McGlasson did a great job talking about one of our other values. It's our second value. It's under scripture. Uh, you know, just the idea of, you know, having authority uh, as you know, God's authority in our lives. And then last midweek, which is before Easter, we actually looked at um, uh, with open hands, living with open hands, which is generosity. And we talked about not just giving financially, but with our whole lives. And today's value that Kensington, you know, has is, is, is leading from brokenness. So it starts, they all start with prepositions from brokenness, which is the idea of authenticity. And it's one of our core values because Kensington, uh, you know, uh, hopefully is a place where when you come through the doors and you listen to whoever it is on stage, you can walk away and say, wow, that, that person hopefully was authentic, right? And in fact, it was one of the things that drew me to Kensington almost more than anything else. And I remember when I first got hired in 2004, by the way, um, I was in the Troy campus. I spoke on a Saturday night. And I was just coming out of my old church experience. I had not really understood Kensington DNA. And I, and I used a story that I thought was a home run, incredible story. The problem was, is that I was the hero of the story, right? So, so at the end of the story, I was hoping that people would be inspired to be more like me, right? It was like, it was like and I did this, and God convicted me, and I rose up, and I did this, and why haven't you done this, you know? And, and, and it's one of those things where when I grew up, that's the way it was. And I, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but probably for some of you, you're like, absolutely, that's the way it was. The pastor was up here, and everybody else was down here. And you certainly didn't question the pastor's message. You certainly didn't say anything about that. And so if the pastor's in the back shaking hands like he did at our church, the last thing you would ever go up to and say, hey, let me give you an opinion about this message. Like you wouldn't do that, right? Because it was this, he's up here and everybody else is kind of down here. Whether it was that case or that way or not, it was just the culture of the church, certainly. But I remember getting done on Saturday night. I spoke this illustration. And after I was done, I was speaking again on Sunday on three times. But right after the Saturday night message, Nadine Sleeman, who was the arts director, literally made a beeline down the aisle and met me, and, and she said, okay, hey, here are the three things you did good. Here are the 12 things you need to change 
before tomorrow. And I was like, wow, first of all, that was unusual. Like nobody's ever done that for me. And by the way, that's the way Kensington is even today. Uh, we, we pride ourselves in like saying, hey, everybody speak into it because we want a, a great product and a great you know, delivery. We don't want personalities or pride to come into it. We want good advice. And so we do that all the time. But one of the things that surprised me is that she said, don't ever, and she looked at me, and she had her finger, she had a little finger right at me, and she goes, don't ever tell a story where you're the hero and everybody else needs to aspire to be like you. And I looked at her completely confused, and I said, why? And then she told me, and she says, because we're a place that talks about our brokenness. We lead from brokenness. And so that's the, that is the, um, the value for tonight. So I just want to let you know that uh, during Easter, how many of you came to Easter? Raise your hand if you came to Easter. You remember that video of the atheist and, and the atheist was giving his testimony. He was a former atheist and he actually said, he mispronounced Lake Orion. He said Orion, remember that? And it was really funny. And so Aaron was in charge of all of Easter for all of campuses. So Aaron decided to leave that mispronunciation in because it showed that this guy was brand new, didn't know what he was talking about, you know. And, and, and I also spoke into it and said, oh, absolutely, leave it in, right? Um, I got an email. And by the way, if, you, if the person who sent the email is here, it's, no, it's not a big deal. But this person had a question. She'd never been to Kensington. And so she sent an email in and she said, I have a question. She goes, it looked like your man, who was supposed to be an authentic story, was reading off of a script and he mispronounced Orion and said Orion. And what kind of person who goes to a church doesn't know how to pronounce the name of the church? And so she said, so I think he was an actor. I think that that whole story was, you know, it made me question all of Kensington's validity. And so, and by the way, I mean, hey, I mean, you know, whatever. And, and, and I never would have thought that angle. And so I emailed her back. And the first sentence I said was, wow. I said, and I thought I was the biggest skeptic that there is. I mean, that was over the top. But I assured her through a big, long paragraph. I said, if, if, any, if you could be assured of anything, please know that Kensington will always, and, and what I mean by that is our church will always do our best to be as authentic as we can. We did a video about three years ago on a Sunday morning service. We did a series called Heart and Soul. And uh, it was the same series where I did my Redwood Tree uh, videos. And we talked about the value of leading from brokenness and being authentic. And so I thought it'd be great if we took some time and watched that video. So take a look at this. Every day, when you look in the mirror, do you like what you see? Are you happy with how you look, with who you are? Or do you feel a need to conceal the lines, the wrinkles, the secrets? What is it that makes us try to be something that we aren't? Is it the pressure of living up to the expectations of our co-workers, our friends, our family, ourselves? So we pretend. We pretend we have it all figured out. Afraid that we would be discovered to be a fraud, we put on a mask.
imagine a community of people who lived from their brokenness, who revealed their weaknesses and didn't feel the need to hide and cover up and pretend. A community where God's power was revealed on a daily basis through the fact that there was no faking and no judging of others. That kind of community could change the world. I remember when I was roaming halls like these in high school and the pressure that I felt to measure up, to be liked, to fit in, to belong. I think we all felt that. And the question is, why do we wear masks? So many of us are driven by what other people think of us. And because of that, we hide who we really are. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, he looked inside his heart and wrote about what he saw. He says, for nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For the good I want to do, I do not do. But the evil that I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. And he's talking about something that we all know. We all struggle with sin. But it's not the struggle with sin that bothers those outside the church. It's that those of us inside the church hide it. We pretend like we've got it all figured out. And then we point fingers at and look down at people who struggle with sin. We wanna be a community of people who humbly reveal our weaknesses and our shortcomings, who lead from our brokenness, a community without the pressure to measure up and to look our best, a safe place where you can be yourself. And that starts with knowing who we are in Christ. Because what God says about us is more important than what people think about us. And in Ephesians 2.10, it says that we are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God planned for us long ago. And if that's true, that means we don't have to pretend. We don't have to hide our flaws and our brokenness. In the Bible, we know that the Apostle Paul had a weakness. He had brokenness in his life that he asked God multiple times to remove. And we find God's answer to him in 2 Corinthians, where he says, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And he says, I'll boast gladly about my weaknesses, my hardship and insults and persecution. For when I am weak, then I am made strong. God's answer to Paul was no. And so Paul, rather than hiding his weakness and pushing his brokenness to the side and pretending to be something he wasn't, he embraced it, he talked about it, he brought it up. Paul realized that the strength of following Jesus wasn't in hiding his brokenness and presenting a perfect exterior, but rather the strength in following Jesus was revealing his weakness and in that weakness being strong.
Living this out has been a journey for me. Back when I roamed halls like these in high school, I was an athlete. That's what I was. I played golf and I played beach volleyball at a high level. When I got to college, I played collegiate golf and on the men's indoor volleyball team for Oakland University. That's what I was. At the age of 24, newly married to the girl of my dreams, tragedy struck my life. I was helping a lady change a tire and was hit by a car going 50 miles an hour, crushed between the back bumper of the van and, and her car. I woke up 10 days later an amputee. Sports were over for me, so I thought. Four months later, I learned to walk. I received my first prosthetic. And as soon as I was able to use it, I had them build it up and put synthetic skin on it and make it look exactly like my other leg. I had a lot of reasons why I wanted that, very practical reasons. One, I wanted to make it easier for other people. It looked better when I was wearing pants. It made it easier to line up my golf shots. It was more protective when we had little kids. But those weren't the real reasons. The real reasons were I was afraid that other people would think I was less of a man. I was afraid that other people would see me and think I was less of a leader and less than in general. And if I'm really honest, I felt less than. I felt less of a man, less of a leader, because I couldn't do the things I could do before. So for 12 years, I kept that cover on, hoping to hide my brokenness. Until one day I was getting a new leg made and the guy who makes my legs asked me a question. He just says, why do you want your leg covered anyways? And I gave him my list of reasons. None of them the real reasons. And then he made a statement that changed me. He looked at me and he said, but God made you that way. Why do you want to cover that up? I didn't have an answer. And my first thought was, well, God didn't make me that way, but that's how I am now. And all my other reasons for covering up my leg just fell flat. As I realized that I was trying to hide what was now a part of me. That was the last day I wore the cover. Because as I look at it, if scripture is true, that God's power is made perfect in weakness, why would I want to live my life covering mine up? What would happen if we decided to take off the mask, to let others in, to be vulnerable, what if it's not at all like what we expect? What if it's in the very weakness that we're trying so hard to disguise that we find strength, that we find freedom? Today, God is inviting you into real relationships, ones where you no longer have to fear being you. Life is too precious to spend hiding in the dark so step out into the light and take off the mask.
make you think, won't it? When it comes down to it, I think that all of us have masks and a certain kind of masks for different reasons. Uh, you know, there's a lot of masks that look like hero masks or superhero masks, and uh, we put on that category of mask to look stronger than we are. And I think that a lot of us, especially, I can't speak for women, but I know men do this often. Uh, we try to portray ourselves as stronger as we really are, and we don't want to admit being broken or being afraid or being scared. Um, I know that there's a category of masks that uh, are like Mardi Gras masks that make you pretty, and they, they, and they make you look, you know, prettier than you feel about yourself. You know, things, things like self-esteem masks that where we hide a frown behind a smile. And then there's the category of a generic mask that doesn't necessarily portray an identity of a character, but it's just something that covers your face. And that is just the category of us wanting to hide from people. And a lot of us, we go through seasons of our life where we know we're struggling, where we know perhaps if we just let people really, you know, know what we're struggling with, we're going to hear, you know, things we don't want to hear. And so therefore, we try our very best to just cover up and just to hide or to be anonymous or just to let people, you know, not see the real us. I think that we do it for all different sorts of reasons, and we do it in very, very small ways. And in some, some cases, we do it in very, very big ways. It could either define our lives or it could be, you know, small snippets of our lives. Uh, so the question is, why do we wear masks? And why do I wear the mask? Here's maybe a couple of reasons. The first one is I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed of what I'm really feeling. The reason why I wear a mask sometimes is because I don't want you to know what my thought life is like, and I don't want you to know what I'm feeling and what my sin, sinful temptations or desires or even actions are like because as a pastor or not even as a pastor, but as a Christian or as a mother or as a father or as a friend or as a role model or as a boss, uh, I'm just embarrassed behind what I'm really truly like. Another reason is this, um, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what you'll think of me. I'm afraid that you'll think less of me. I'm afraid of your rejection. I'm afraid of, uh, you know, being, uh, you know, down here. I was up here and I'm down here. And so I'm afraid of that. And a lot of times, again, we're fearful and, and fear causes us to not be open and authentic and honest and vulnerable and transparent with people. And then the last reason certainly is one of the biggest reasons is it's easier it's certainly easier to not let people in than it is to have to deal with people accepting us for who we really are. Because all of us are imperfect. All of us struggle. All of us have things that we, you know, are wrestling with that are insecurities. Uh, you know, just like Kevin said, you know, feelings, uh, you know, things that maybe we can't even identify in ourselves. And it's certainly easier not to let people in and wear the mask than it is uh, to let people in. But the problem with that is you don't even have to be a Christian to know that that's an unhealthy way to live. You don't even have to be spiritual to know that, that, that living authentically is a healthier way. It's healthier physically. It's healthier emotionally. It, it's healthier spiritually. We, you know, again, even without the spirituality, you know that's probably true. But there's a bigger problem with that. The bigger problem with living with masks in our lives, whether permanently or seasonally, is that we see in the Bible that that is not the way that is modeled for us or encouraged uh, to us when living under the covenant uh, of the New Testament. 
And by the new covenant, what I'm meaning is, is that there's the Old Testament, you know, and then, you know, before Jesus came, and then once Jesus came and died on a cross to pay for all your sins and my sins, what did he say? He said, I make to you a new covenant, and, 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 and there's a new promise I make to you, and therefore, uh, everything has changed. And so, those who live after the new covenant, there is a, there is a shift that happens, and it leans radically in the New Testament toward authenticity. And, and by the way, it starts with our view of sin, okay, our view of sin. If you go back into the Old Testament before Jesus came, uh, I want you to know that God's standard of sin has never changed. It's not as if in the Old Testament God says, I view these things as sinful, and then because Jesus came, eh, I'm just kidding, right? Uh, Jesus is this, you know, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, by the way, this is a side note, but many people try to tell me because Jesus didn't mention a certain sin that maybe God has changed his mind from what he said in the Old Testament. And I'm thinking to myself, that wasn't Jesus's job to cover the gamut of the law or list all of sins. In fact, like Jesus didn't mention witchcraft. Does that mean that God's okay with witchcraft? What is that about? Like, it's not, that's not the case. It goes against everything that the Bible says about God. God's standard of sin never changes. The difference is God's response to sin changes drastically in the, under the new covenant, right? So in other words, God still has a standard of sin for our, my life and for your life. The difference is his response is no longer wrath. It's no longer demanding of, of, of a sacrifice that is temporary. God's response to sin changes radically, and, and not only that, but think about this. Not only is there a radical theological, uh, you know, response to God's sin that changes, he, he responds to sin now with forgiveness uh, only because there's something new that's added. And the thing that is new that is added is the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus. And so therefore, not only is there a theological shift on sin, but then it is also commanded to us that you and I are supposed to have a, a massive shift on how we respond to others' sins and our own sin as well. Because what does the Bible say? Jesus says, uh, a new command I give to you, to love one another. Uh, you know, you have heard it said in the Old Testament, an eye for an eye, but I'm here to tell you that you're supposed to forgive your enemies, that you're supposed to, you know, forgive one another just as, you know, God forgave you through Christ. And so it's all laid out for us that not only does God respond to sin radically, you know, different, but, but also it's modeled for us that you and I need to understand that sin is a part of the equation and that you and I are called to not forget sin or excuse sin, to still keep the same standard of sin and yet to respond to others relationally with forgiveness as God has done with us, right? And so that's, that's it's not modeled... Um, it's not modeled any stronger than the Apostle Paul. So the Apostle Paul is the first one that comes along the scene that models with authenticity or leading from brokenness. And all of a sudden, you know, out of all the Bible characters in the Old Testament, we finally are able to see the inside struggle of one of the saints of the Bible. You know, St. Paul. Do you grow up calling him St. Paul? Right, St. Paul is, is, is all of a sudden, you're, you're viewing him through a different lens because you see chinks in his armor. You see that he's not perfect. You see that he doesn't have it all together. He models authenticity by letting you inside of the struggle that he is having, and he does it through 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament, 14 if you believe that he wrote Hebrews, but he wrote almost nearly half of the New Testament, and Paul is the one that models this. And by the way, uh, Paul makes a few statements uh, about his brokenness and about sin being totally authentic that we're going to be looking at. And here's the first one. The first one is a public statement. 
And so this is, this is probably one of the top statements that he made. He said, this is a trustworthy saying and everyone should accept it. Christ Jesus, remember the redeeming work of Christ emphasized, came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them all. So this is a public statement. And the reason why I say it's public is because he doesn't have to qualify that. Paul doesn't have to explain that because everybody knows what kind of man Paul was. Paul, in fact, had to change his name from Saul to Paul because his reputation was so bad. So let me just look at a few verses in Acts chapter 9 when Paul very first meets Jesus. And let me just kind of run through what everybody already in the first century already knows. Look at Acts chapter 9 verses 1 and 2. It says, meanwhile, Saul, this was his old name, was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. This is back when Saul was working for the Sanhedrin, the same Supreme Court that put Jesus to death. Saul, who was persecuting Christians, and there's a lot of debate on whether or not Paul was uh, responsible for killing Christians. Most scholars and most people agree that Paul probably had people killed or at least ordered people killed. It did say eager to kill. There's no evidence, although he did, in Acts chapter 7, uh, we already see that he uh, participated in, uh, you know, condoned. He, he, was, he was consenting to the death of Stephen, the first martyr, and he's moving up the ranks. And now it says this, so he went to the high priest and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, a neighboring city, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of, and this is what Christianity used to be known as, it wasn't called Christianity, it was called the way. And so it was called Followers of the Way He Found There, okay? Now, what, what basically, uh, the reason why I put that up there is because everybody knows that Saul worked for the Sanhedrin and he was very successful in creating persecution in Jerusalem to such a degree that he would went and he went to uh, Caiaphas and he asked a letter and said, can I please go to the neighboring city and accomplish there what I've accomplished here And so Caiaphas says, yes, absolutely, gives him a letter, and then he goes on his way. And if you read Acts chapter 9, you'll know that is where Jesus meets him on the road. Jesus comes back to earth and recruits Saul, right? And he already had the 12 disciples and the apostles, but he recruits the apostle Paul, and he has an encounter with the apostle Paul. And what does he say? He says, you know, Saul, uh, you know, uh, he says, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus, the one you, you are persecuting. And Saul says, what would you have me do? And he says, arise, go into the city, and, and, and I'll tell you what to do. And so Saul then, you know, goes into town. And so everybody is fearful of Saul. And if you know the rest of the story, what happens? The disciples have to vouch for Saul because he walks in and they're thinking, spy, double agent, he's going to kill us all. He's walking in pretending to be a follower of the way. He's going to pull out, you know, blow a horn, do whatever, and we're going to get raided and we're going to get killed. And everybody was skeptical of this man, and he changed his name from Saul, which means in the Hebrew to be prayed for, to Paul, which translates into little or small. And so what does he do? He has to deal with the fact that every person knows publicly that his reputation is one of sin, is one of shame, and is one of blasphemy. So when he makes statements to Timothy and also to the letter to the church and says, I am the worst of sinners, everybody knows what that means. And he went public. He had to, excuse me, he was, he was forced to deal with his public sin just because God had given him an assignment for everybody else. So let me ask you this question. The, the question that I have for you is this. Why did God wait so long 
to recruit Saul. Why couldn't God have chosen Saul before he became known as somebody who was sinful and somebody who was, you know, like everybody saw the insides of his heart, his hatred, his malice, I mean, murdering, you know, and everything else, women, children, all the above. Why did Jesus wait to appear on the Damascus Road? Why couldn't he have prevented it in Jerusalem? Well, if you study that portion of Scripture, you probably already know the answer to this. God is awesome in his supreme timing, that God waited until the perfect time. And what I mean by that is, is that we already know and understand in church history that God uh, used the persecution in Jerusalem to spread the gospel. That if persecution hadn't happened, that people wouldn't have fled from Jerusalem and they wouldn't have, you know, held firm to their faith and they had to follow Christ and they were completely committed. And so that became a thing where God used persecution to actually further the gospel and start churches around the world. But not only that, but God waited also for the right time for Paul. Because after all, Paul's testimony, you know, somebody who was this dirty, rotten sinner becoming this saint is a really powerful conversion story, of course. But at the same time, he has a lot of baggage that goes with it. I believe that not only did Jesus wait for the perfect time for the church, the perfect time for Paul's conversion story and for himself, but I also believe that Jesus waited because it was the perfect time for you and it was the perfect time for me. And the reason why I'm saying that is this, is because Paul then is perfectly prepared to model what he's modeled for the people group that he was called to, and that people group is you and me. And here's the reason why I'm saying that, because what better person to be called to a bunch of godless Gentiles than a person who's known to be a godless person? A person who's known to, to, to not be a Jewish person. Do you realize when Jesus came into the earth, right at the end of the Old Testament, and there's, a, uh, there's a big period of silence there, and then what does Jesus do? He comes to what? To, to, to reveal his uh, uh, promises. Uh, all the way through the Old Testament, Jesus was promised through, through God's chosen people, the Jewish people. And so Jesus came and he chose what? He chose 12 disciples of Jewish people who were raised in godly homes, who practiced and, and looked toward Yahweh, who knew the Torah, who, you know, and, they, and they knew all of these things. And so who does Jesus you know, uh, interact with in the, in the, in the New Testament? his 12 Jewish disciples who were godly people because he was answering all the prophecies and, and, and coming to prove his authority through the Jewish people, which are God's chosen people, a small group of people. But Jesus not only came to do that, but then something had to happen. God wanted to reach the whole world. God wanted to make sure that his sacrifice wasn't just for the chosen people who, who you know, God's glory was shown through the, New, through the Old Testament. But now Jesus approaches Saul and says, you're going to go to a generation where every single Jewish person is going to argue with just about every single Gentile and they're going to be forced to get along and there's going to be so much tension and there's going to be so much turmoil because this group doesn't get along with this group. This group is known to, to, to not even know anything about God. They're known to be godless people. And so Saul, Jesus chooses Saul with a reputation of being blasphemous, of being sinful, and of having shame because he is called to that type of people. By the way, if you're in here and you're not Jewish, that means you're a Gentile. 
And so Paul had to go to all of the Mediterranean Rim and all, all, that, all around that region of modern-day Turkey and, 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 and southern Europe, and he started churches all around the Mediterranean Rim, which eventually led over into Europe, which eventually made all its way over to the United States of America, which means that Paul is our people, godless people. Paul is our guy. Paul is the guy that was called to us. If you're not Jewish in here, you are a Gentile, and the message of Christ is for you. And so I believe that what happens is when your sin is forced to go public, in fact, I've written this down. Uh, uh, you know what? Let me, let, me, let me do this first. Let me, let me write down, or let me read for you, because uh, I already read a public statement of Paul's. Let me read a private or a personal statement of Paul's next, okay? Uh, the private or personal statement of Paul he says, I know that nothing good lives in me. Kevin talked about this in the thing. And he says, that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And so Paul says, there's nothing good that lives in me. The reason why I've called it a private or a personal statement is this, is that Paul doesn't have to let us know what is going on internally at all, does he? Paul doesn't have to say, hey, listen, i got to be honest with you. I really want to be a good Christian, but my heart is kind of evil and wicked. Uh, in Galatians, what does he do? He talks about the wrestling of the spirit versus the flesh. Paul, more than anybody, gets more authentic and open, talking about sin nature and the wrestling of wanting to do good but not having the desire or not having the willpower, and he goes through. And what does he do? He makes public statements, but at the same time, he makes personal statements. He makes private statements. Now, granted, when you go back to the Jewish world, sure, like, you know, Thomas was a doubter. Okay, that's what we know about Thomas. We know that Peter admitted to a mistake. But was there anybody in the Old Testament or in the Jewish clan of the disciples that ever said, let me tell you what I'm feeling. Let me tell you how I'm struggling. Let me tell you that I don't have it all together. This was not modeled by any one of the Jewish boys raised in godly homes or in the, or in the Old Testament. Think about it. When you think about the subject of authenticity and you think, what Bible character are we going to study? It's always Paul who makes public statements, but then what does he do? He makes private statements that he doesn't have to make, and he gets authentic. And so here, here, here's what I uh, observed, a couple uh, of observations, and here's the first one. If everything private became public, if everything private became public, our message would be saturated with God's grace, wouldn't it? Think about it. If everything in your private, you know, not, not privates, okay? <laughs> if every, everything that is private in your heart and in your thought life, okay? If everything private became public and everybody knew the, the deepest, you know, the, the, the darkest parts of your thought life and of your heart, then your message and my message would be forced to be saturated with God's grace, wouldn't it? Right? It would. Because we would have no choice. We would be humble. Let me say it a different way. This is a truth that is true. When people are forced, how about this one? When people are forced, when people are forced to go public with their sinful nature, they automatically take the posture of humility and authenticity. Think about any public figure who is on top of the world and they're kind of cocky and then all of a sudden they get caught with something. And, they, and not, not everybody, but I would say the majority of people, if they know that it's wrong, immediately you watch their posture and they're quieter, and they're repentant, and they apologize to the public. And sometimes they'll even go 
into hiding and they'll have a long recovery until they come back and win the Masters, right? I mean, come on. I mean, but, but there, and it's a great victory and a great day on that day. But what I'm saying is, is when people are forced to go public with their sinful nature, they automatically take the posture of humility and authenticity. Because I believe that when we are forced to go public with our sinful nature, that is our response because the mask comes off and people see whether we want to or not. Well, here's my contention. My contention is, is that when Paul reveals his heart, that is Paul forcing you and me to go public because that's not a statement about his heart only. It's a statement about your heart and it's a statement about my heart. And every time we read that, it almost forces us to admit. And we say, yes, God wrote that in his perfection. And it identifies with me because this is the condition of the human heart. And Paul says, you know, this is what's true of humanity. This is what's true of me. It's what's true of every person. And you know what that is? It's almost as if you and I are being forced to admit it publicly. Yes, we're sinners. Yes, we're imperfect. No, we don't have it all together. Yes, we identify with Paul. Yes, we'll, 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 we'll take our cues from Paul. We admit publicly that we are that way too. And then it becomes easier then to model with authenticity because when we decide to become open, we understand that it's healthier. We get, we get a glimpse of the health and, and, the, and the freedom that comes with being authentic. And then all of a sudden, the things we say are more effective. You know, like our stories are, are, are more valid. You know, we have more credibility in someone's eyes. The ability to encourage, the ability to pray for, the ability to identify, the ability to, em- to empathize. All of these things are healthy, positive things, and they all are modeled by Paul. And they all come from this one idea of leading from brokenness. So what good comes from I'm up here and you're down here? What good comes from that? I mean, take a look at all of history, secular history. Take a look at church history. Take a look at, you know, Christian conversations on Facebook. I mean, well, I'm up here, you're down here. When, When it comes down to it, I'm not sure there's one good thing that comes from a posture of I'm up here and you're down here. Jesus spoke against it and Paul modeled it for us. And you and I are called to live authentically to be transparent, to say, I don't have it all together. I recognize that I'll try my hardest because God's standard of sin has never changed. But the the good news is God's response to sin has changed drastically. So even though I mess up, God's grace covers me. Even though that I'm not perfect, God forgives me. Even though that I'm, you know, have thought lives and, you know, in my thought life and I have evil desires, I know that God loves me exactly as I am and my worth is not dependent on my sinful nature because I know that nothing good lives in me. But I know that Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ has given me a value above uh, above all things outside of himself. And so, listen, when it comes down to it, The question is this, why should you and I take off our mask and why should we be vulnerable to people? Why should we confess? Why should we be honest? Why should we let go of pride? Why should we, you know, tarnish our own image willingly? Why should I disappoint others? And why should I take off the mask and let other people know how vulnerable and weak and, you know, the struggles that I have? And the answer is because of what Paul says. And Paul says, 
our weakness reveals God's strength. So this is, again, what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. This is how it reads. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And then um, I want you to know that, uh, okay, this last story that I have is, uh, is, is a conversation that I had last night. Just last night, I had dinner with Nick Boring. Nick Boring was on our staff for uh, umpteen years, and he was in charge of church planting, and, and it still does church planting. And he's really excited about, we're launching a, a church. Our, our campus is launching uh, uh, John Pomeroy in Mount Clemens. And uh, it's, it's New Anthem Church, if you've uh, heard about that. And so Nick is uh, excited about that. We're having dinner at a restaurant last night. And uh, we were reminded of our friendship because when I first got hired in 2004, we had a little bit of a rocky friendship and then something changed. And, uh, and even though we didn't talk about it last night, I was reminded of it last night in light of this message today. And I'll tell you real quick in about 60 seconds. Um, what changed was I went to him and admitted and confessed something very small, and yet it was entirely embarrassing to, to, to admit. I went to a Pistons game with him. We were up in a booth, and I don't know, we had some sort of suite or something, and I had made some sort of a gesture that I was going to go all the way down on the floor and find Kid Rock, who was down there, and I was going to hand him an invitation to a Kensington Christmas service. And I had the invitation, and I went all the way down. He was up in the booth, and I stood there when, when Kid Rock was walking by, you know. And by the way, anybody know his first name? It's Chris. Anybody know that? His real name's Chris. And so I thought if I yelled his name, he would look like Chris. And he'd be like, there's somebody I know. So, so I, that was my plan. And so he walked by, and I said, Chris. And he didn't even, he was just a trained professor. He just walked right by, ignored me. And I handed out my invitation. He walked right by me. He didn't take it. And I ended up putting it in my pocket. And I don't know why I did this. I was just hired. It was only a couple weeks, but I went back up there, and, and Nick says, hey, I wasn't watching. Did he take it? And I said, yeah. Yeah, he took it. Yeah, he took it. I don't know. Maybe he'll come, you know? And he's like, you're awesome, man. You're so cool. I can't believe you gave Kid Rock an invitation. I'm like, I am cool. I am awesome. I'm, I, can you believe I did that? I am the best. I didn't say any of that, but I, but I felt that way. I don't know why I did it. It was so foolish. And yet, like, it was years and years that went by, like eight or nine years, and it just always bothered me. And, and so I remember just pulling him aside, and I said, I have something really dumb and, and really trivial to tell you. And, and I said, I don't know why I said that he took it, but he ignored me. <laughs> he never even looked at me, and I never gave him the invitation. He didn't take it, and I don't know why I said that. And he goes, well, two things, Chris. He said, number one, I don't remember that at all. He said, so you've been carrying this around, and I don't even remember anything about an invitation. He said, but number two, he said, uh, I'm super glad that you told me. He said, because that means a lot. What is it about the power of authenticity? You know, what, what is it about the strengthening of character and integrity? And, and, and what it is is it amplifies my weakness. But what it does is it shows that Christ's power is made strong through our brokenness. And so at Kensington, we hope, and the reason why we're even covering values is because we need to understand, number one, we have a lot of new people at Clinton Township, but number two, even for our regulars, that every single time we walk out of this, you know, out of these church doors, or every time we're a part of a small group, or back in Kensington Kids, or talking with somebody and we're doing some sort of a volunteer job, we have to understand that 
the DNA of what we're about is even more important, right? You would argue maybe even more important than, than it could be you know, delivered from anybody on stage. That, did I say that right? right? It's more important lived out than it is talked about, right? All right, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time together. We ask your blessing on it. Lord, we thank you for your love in our lives. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for this uh, topic and this subject of authenticity. And Father, I pray that we would all uh, understand the importance of what is modeled for us and that what is an intentional shift and, and what, is, uh, what is driven home by Paul. And I pray, God, that we would be a people that would be completely authentic, that we would be a people that would be completely motivated to live through brokenness, God, so that your power may be, may be made strong in our weakness. That, Father, that all the good and healthy things that happen in our lives would be, would be shown through our weaknesses. And I pray, Lord, that we would delight in weakness. I pray, God, that we would, we would embrace our weaknesses, that we would promote our weaknesses, that we would not avoid our weaknesses. And, God, that we would be a people that would learn to take off the mask and help, help us to know, God, that it is not only okay, but it's the best place we could possibly be. In Jesus' name, amen.